Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned. Discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit learner.co. That's learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Callie Lucina. She's the co-founder and COO at Wyvern. John and Greg, I'm excited to have her on the show. I think just the fact that anybody's doing space in Edmonton is completely fascinating to me. I think what they're doing is really fascinating to me. But what are you guys looking forward to hearing from uh, Callie today? Oh, I'm looking forward to the interview. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Uh, first of all, they're different than uh, a lot of the other guests we've had on the show. Um, they're launching things into space, which is <laughs> unique and cool. I launching really means launching. Yes, and I think their <laughs> I think their actual launch is this year. They've been developing this for a few years, and uh, and they just got into Y Combinator, so pretty exciting company to be interviewing right now. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, this is hard science, and I think this is that that's pretty neat to me. Just the geek, my inner geek is super excited right now. Um, and I think as well, the, the, she's got a pretty interesting the background, uh, just looking on LinkedIn, there's some questions that I'd love for us to, to get to just about her career and, and how, how, what she has learned along the way has, you know, informed Wyvern and, and created this, this cool thing. So yeah, I'm excited about it. Callie, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to, or we're excited to have you on the show. John and Greg are also joining me today, and they're also going to ask some questions of you. So the three of us are excited to have you on the show. Uh, do you maybe want to give us a bit of uh, background on yourself, uh, kind of where you grew up, where you went to school, and then we'll dive into kind of uh, Wyvern and everything you're doing with that? Yeah, definitely. I was born and raised here in Edmonton, where I am today. Well um i went to the university of alberta where i got a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering um but that was really beside the point the point of my university experience seemed to be the alberta sat student group it was an extracurricular student-run project that made the very first ever made an alberta satellite and i started volunteering for that mm -hmm. right at the beginning of my first year uh, at university and continued volunteering until my last years um and that's where I met my co-founders. So um, as a student at Alberta Sat, I operated the Exalta One satellite, the very first ever made in Alberta satellite nearly every day for a year before it burned up in the atmosphere as planned. And then I um, led the project for the first couple of years of Exalta Two, Exalta One's successor, which is gonna launch into space later this year. Um, at around that same time, I met my co-founders and co-founded Wyvern, a satellite company he based here in Edmonton. And uh, Wyvern is four years old now. We have about 20 employees and our first satellites are going up at the end of this year for the company. So that's my that's my story and how I got here. That is Very so cool. cool. Now, uh, on your LinkedIn profile, I did check out your LinkedIn profile. And on there, <laughs> you did mention as well, dance instructor, which is, I think, super fascinating. You know, this performance art and you're sending things to space and so super cool on both sides 
is there any interplay or anything about what you are, are doing today that um, that dance has either prepared you for that you've used in in work or in life, I guess? Yes, totally. So many things. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is growing up dancing on like a pretty competitive team. Um, I learned what it feels like to be working really hard with a team of other people who are also super committed to the same goals that you are. And then um, just feeling how incredible it could be when all of you are working towards that same goal. Um, that same feeling I've only ever gotten at Alberta Sat and at Wyvern right now. Those are just high functioning teams. Um, I was first introduced to them at dance. And now as a dance teacher, I do learn things as I'm teaching that I apply to like how I work with my coworkers, like how I treat my dancers. I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably carry that lesson to work with me. So um, there are a lot of a lot of ways that it overlaps. That is can you super give cool. us can you give us some examples of what you learned teaching dance that you apply to your coworkers? I'm curious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I want to mention that I do teach teenagers. I don't teach like toddlers or anything. So, <laughs> but. Um, one thing is, uh, I learned that sometimes people just need a gentle reminder at dance. I'm like, we've gone over this so many times. I don't understand how you haven't applied this correction yet. And, and I think like, wow, this is going to be so challenging to overcome. But then I just give the girls a gentle reminder and suddenly it's fixed. And that also applies at work. Like oftentimes you just need to give somebody like a small nudge and that's all it takes. Um, even though you can build it up in your head to be like a bigger problem than it actually is. So that's something I discovered last week that has helped me at work um, that I brought from dance. But it's also just, it serves as a big creative outlet in my life. Obviously I have a day job sitting at a desk doing really analytical thinking um, in a male dominated environment too. And then I switch and go to like a highly female dominated environment that's, um, I'm up on my feet running around all the time. And it's mainly creative thinking. So it adds a lot of balance to my life. Okay. Very cool. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into, you quickly covered it, but what exactly is Wyvern and what is its mission? Because it's completely fascinating to me. Um, Wyvern's mission is to make actionable intelligence from space um, accessible on Earth like never before. So actionable means uh, we're collecting data from our satellites in space that can be used to make better decisions on the ground, mainly in agriculture and natural resources sectors. Um, that data is in the form of imagery. So we have satellites that take pictures of Earth. We send the data to analysts on the ground that then extract some insight that can be used by the agriculture or natural resources sectors. Um, and right now, although you can buy um, Earth imagery from a number of different players in the market, Wyvern's imagery is going to have more data than any commercially available satellite imagery has right now. And by more data per image, we mean that there's more spectral bands. So the typical digital image has red, green, and blue layers, like an RGB image to give you like a full color picture. Wyvern's uh, imagery from the satellites that are launching this year will have 32 different colors in it, not just red, green, blue, but we're chopping up the colors wow. into 32 more narrow parts of the spectrum so that we get way more spectral information about the chemistry of what's in the image. And that's how we can get more actionable insights. 
Oh, we need more explanation on that. That's amazing. Yeah, so, totally. 32. So, okay, because I understand RGB, but but what does 32 mean? Like, what 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 are the spaces? Are they in between RG and B? Are they are you going kind of higher and lower frequency, or all of the above? Yeah, that's a great question. A little bit of both. Um, so the word for it is hyperspectral imaging rather than multispectral imaging. Multi is like you have a few colors like red, green, blue, but with hyperspectral imaging, you get a more continuous set of bands. So in between, um, in between like red and green, there's going to be a bunch of other colors in the spectrum. We're also capturing those. And we can also go a little bit outside the red edge of the spectrum into the infrared and near infrared parts of it. Um, so the reason you want that is because you're basically measuring the chemical signature. It's it's close to like doing spectroscopy on each spectrum in your image. You're measuring the chemistry of what you're looking at. And so in agricultural agriculture, sorry, for example, that can not only tell you whether your plant is is green or brown, which is what today's imagery can tell you, but it can tell you what disease is plaguing the plant or help you predict crop yield. Um, to much higher accuracy because you know the health of the plant in a lot more um, in a lot more detail. So that's what you can do with the additional spectral information. Wow. So okay, I'm I'm hearing now. So you're you're sending things to space. That's physics. You're you're taking I guess images. That's more physics and, and crazy physics. Which I I never understood. Light always amazes me. And then <laughs> you've got chemistry of what's going on on the ground and, and agriculture, biology, and all of, like, who knows all of that on your team? Or is that like, maybe this is all about the high function teams. Like how on earth do you put together a group of people to make useful information out of all these skills? That's so cool. And I'm gonna add to that question, how do you put together a team of people that can do that in Edmonton. In Edmonton, <laughs> yes. The only satellite that's been launched was made by students. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we do have obviously an incredible team. Like the 20 people working at Wyvern are all pulling tons of weight. Um, we have a couple optics PhDs. Um, then we have, uh, yeah, space physics PhD. Um, and then a lot of engineering and aerospace engineering background. Um, we do also, so our, our clients, especially with our first satellite, are mainly in the agriculture sector. So one of our executives, Megan Deer, is the um, former CEO of another Edmonton company, Localize. So she has a lot of experience in the agriculture data sector. Cool. So how did you get some of these first clients? Because like you said, Edmonton's not really known for this. So like, how did you get people to put faith and trust in your abilities to actually make this stuff happen. Yeah, a couple things. Um, so one of the things that helped us land our early deals is that our CEO had founded a company before. So we already had some connections in the satellite data industry. Um, and so just having a founding team that knows who's who um, has really helped us. And secondly, uh, it's taken us a long time to figure out how our sales cycle works. Like Wyvern has been around for four years and we've been changing our approach on sales constantly because you're totally right. How do you get people to have faith that you're going to deliver when your company is so capital intensive? Um, we need so much capital to get our first satellite into space. 
um, it's not going to be into in in space until later until like 2022 but we need to to show like evaluate our product market fit now so how do we evaluate product market fit when we're not going to have a product for another few years so our sales team has had a really challenging job and we've just been constantly pivoting and doing ad ab testing like um talking with our advisors constantly to figure out what's going to work for this like really strange deep tech enterprise sales kind of cycle. <laughs> um, honestly, our participation in Y Combinator has helped really change our mindset on how we approach sales, um, just in um, kind of going after uh, what's really important focusing on like what are your key objectives key metrics that you need to show you hit. Um, in the next three months, in the next six months, and really focusing our sales team on those. Um, so it's been like a big journey and a big challenge figuring out how sales works in this particular sector. And um, we're constantly learning still. I think, no, I, I actually think that's really good advice. I, I'm curious, because you're in Y Combinator, is it, be, are they giving you are you like, they obviously probably have people that have done stuff in space before, or, or how do you think they, or where are they, that advice coming from? Great question. Um, there are other space and I would like lump us together with, um, like hard tech companies in, um, in YC too. The YC, uh, the company that graduated from YC that is very similar to Wyvern in, um, Kind of its growth trajectory is probably uh, boom the supersonic jet company because they also are really capital intensive they have a similar kind of enterprise sales cycle huge contracts that take a long time to land um and so yc like internally has advice from previous companies that are like us in the aerospace sector but they also did a good job of lumping us together and keeping us close with other companies that aren't just b2b SaaS like software companies um because they obviously have a totally different approach. So they have had the internal expertise and they've also kept us close with similar companies so that we can go through these challenges together. Interesting. So I'm curious, how did you raise that first round of capital? Did it come from the university or, or walk us through that? Because like you said, it's capital intensive. <laughs> yeah, we bootstrapped for three years. We got, oh, um, wow. yeah, we wow. had uh, founders contributing money, obviously, and um, we got some grants from the Canadian Space Agency and the provincial okay. government uh, pretty early on that carried us through the first years. And then uh, we raised our first round mainly from friends, family and angels um, okay. about a year ago. And we had tried to raise money before that and it just wasn't successful. So don't think that that's the first time we tried. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then um, with admission to Y Combinator, that introduced us to obviously a much larger network of investors and set us up for success with our seed round that followed the angel round. And um, now we just finished preparing for our uh, Series A, which is coming up imminently. Very cool. Cool. Um, so I'm curious then, what advice do you give to people that are trying to raise money when it's a capital intensive startup? Because like you mentioned, it's incredibly challenging. Yeah, um, I think this advice applies to like health tech companies. It's not, don't just think it's also space, like anything where your product is going to take a long time to get rolled out. Um, you do need to sell, focus on selling contracts 
uh, for the future, um, not just letters of intent, but actual contracts to show that you have the product market fit, even though you don't have the product. That's number one. Um, number two is, uh, you know, it depends on the founding team and where what they're what they tend to focus on more, but make sure you're keeping your R&D progressing uh, at a really high rate because um, if you need a lot of capital to even get your product to market, runway is even more critical for you than it is for other companies because you could run out of runway before your product is even, it's even possible to make it. And so keeping your R&D schedule accelerating um, is a really should be like a strong focus of the people that are operating your company. I think that's actually that's really good advice. So I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the actual images that are getting taken. We talked about the kind of the colors and the spectrum and the stuff you're capturing, but and and you said you you can see some like diseases on on plants and stuff, but like how detailed and how close can I see? Like, can I see like a speck of dirt or is it like how much, how much zoom, I guess <laughs> for the lack of a better term for it, can I get with your imagery? Zoom is totally the right word. And um, <laughs> thinking, thinking like an engineer, the question shouldn't be like, how much zoom can we get? Because more is better. It should be, how much do we need? Like what's their actual requirement? Right. And right, right. So for agriculture, the action that's going to happen on the ground as a result of our image being taken is fertilizer or water are going to be distributed on a field differently uh, because we know the plant has this disease how do we treat that we know this part needs more of this nutrient how do we get it there and so ultimately what it's going to come down to is a farmer driving um like through the field doing variable rate fertilization or watering and the boom on the side of the combine that actually releases the fertilizer is about five meters long. And so what we need is five meter resolution because that's the uh, smallest unit that the farmer's actually gonna change what they're doing um, based on. So we don't need to see your farmer's field as centimeter by centimeter. Also the crops don't vary that much like centimeter by centimeter. So um, we're looking at like, five meters, especially for our, our earlier generation satellites. And as our technology advances, we'll get higher resolution and then we'll be able to serve different markets that do need the like slightly higher resolution. Like rows of corn, let's say that are either two feet apart or 20 inches apart or whatever, or whatever they're doing these days. That sort of, is that the next step then? Is that what you mean by that? Yes. And other, other natural resources like mining or oil and gas applications, um, remediation of oil, um, sites from the oil and gas industry. Um, there's a whole host of things that will require a little more resolution, but um, we're, we're focusing on the minimum viable satellite right now. And mm -hmm. that is able to meet the specs of agriculture perfectly. Cool. Got you. So, so then eventually, like if you're taking a photo of a crop of whatever, it doesn't really matter. You're gonna send back optimum photos for a crop type photo. And then if it's natural gas or, or gas or whatever, you'll send optimum photos from, for net or for gas or, or, or whatever, right? Is that fair? Yes, exactly. Okay, interesting. So I'm, I'm curious then how lot, like if you take a photo 
now, hypothetically, how long until I get that like second photo or is it like live or, or how updated are these photos? Uh -huh. Again, that depends on the, the use case, but your crop is going to change on like uh, the order of weeks, not the order of days. So even though our satellites have the capability to revisit the same spot on Earth multiple times per week, we'll probably only be delivering, like capturing and delivering cus customers' images um, like a couple times a month for this first mission. Um, the satellites are in an orbit that uh, covers the... It, it orbits Earth 16 times a day. Um, and okay. so we revisit all kinds of different spots at a pretty high cadence. Um, but yeah, customers don't always need an image every time it passes over the, the location. Got you. So how big is the first satellite that you guys are sending to space going to be? Like, is it the size of a car? Is it like, can you give us some sort of real world kind of rough size and shape? That's really easy. Yes. It's, uh, think about two loaves of bread side by side. It's very small. Oh, wow. wow. No way. Yeah. That's this, really is, neat. this is getting into our, our core technology, which I could talk about for hours. So I'll try to sure. uh, control <laughs> yeah, Keep it to seven. Only seven hours. But yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, that's why Wyvern is able to offer this product for the very first time is our core technology is mirrors uh, that unfold off of a very small satellite. So you get basically a giant telescope on a super small, cheap to launch satellite. Right now, um, this type of imagery that Wyvern is selling would be prohibitively expensive because it would need to be coming from such a large satellite that it would cost millions of dollars to launch. But um, if you fold the satellite up into a tiny package, that's also relatively lightweight, launch that and then unfold it in space, you get a satellite that functions like it's very large, but in a, in a cheaper package. Okay, I, I detect maybe there's a story here because those are two, those are, so launching a satellite into space, but then also having the telescope idea. How did this, these things come together? Like who, what's the story behind that? Um, it's a, uh, canonical, like tech company founding story where Chris, our CEO was at the bar with Kristen, one of our other co-founders before Wyvern started. And Kristen is an optics expert. So she would know all about the light and mirrors and the telescope. Chris is a satellite designing guy. He's a mechanical engineer too. So he knows all about the satellite and they were talking about it and they said, you know what, we could probably do this. And then within weeks, Wyvern had been founded and the four of no us way. were together working on it. That's super That's cool. That's really cool. So I'm curious, the actual parts that make up the satellite, are they kind of off the shelf? Did you have to design and build your own, a bit of both or, or walk us through that? Mm -hmm. um, so the reason I use loaf of bread as the, uh, to explain what size the satellite is, is because the satellites we're making are called CubeSats. They're made up of 10 centimeter cubes that fit together in a modular way. Um, if I am talking to students about this, like elementary school students, I say like Lego, they fit together, <laughs> these modules of the satellite. And so we have six 10 centimeter cubes put together to make our satellites that are launching this year. The reason that the 10 centimeter cubes matter and why CubeSats are important is because it's an internationally standardized satellite form factor. 
it was established in 1999 by um, researchers at Stanford and the California Polytechnic Institute. Um, they wrote the very first ever CubeSat standard. And the reason why that's groundbreaking is for the first time ever, the space industry was able to take advantage of, to a certain extent, economies of scale by manufacturing many satellite parts that could be used on di different satellite missions all over the world. Whereas previously, every satellite that was ever made had been a one-off, so the engineering costs were really high. So now you can go, like if you wanted right now, you could use your credit card to buy a satellite computer for a CubeSat online right now. And um, that's, that's how cool. available these parts are. And they will fit together if you buy them from 10 different CubeSat companies. So Wyvern is taking advantage of the CubeSat uh, form factor and buying parts from suppliers to um, keep the costs down. Very cool. So how do you actually launch this into space? Do you need special technology? Do you need to be in a specific geographical location? Just because the only reason I'm saying is like the Kennedy Space Center launches a lot of the stuff for NASA into space. And obviously that's in Florida. Like how does that work with you guys and what you guys are trying to launch into space? Yeah, unfortunately at this time, Canada doesn't have its own ability to launch into space. There are no Canadian rockets taking off from Canadian soil. So we do have to buy a launch from a rocket launching from a different company. Because CubeSats are so prevalent in the space industry now, entire companies have cropped up in the last decade or so that just broker CubeSat launches. So they talk to you, they talk with SpaceX or some other rocket company, and they will match you with a slot on a rocket that fits your satellite perfectly to just take you to the right location in space. Um, so we are using those services to get our satellites up. So um, you, just, wow. you just FedEx your satellite over to some location and they'll send it up? Is that is it that easy? Yep. Yeah. Cool. Wow. It's like Uber <laughs> for satellites. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Okay. No, that's that's fascinating. So how long does it take you to build one of these things? Is it like days, weeks, an afternoon after you order all the parts and you have them sitting in front of you? I should um, ask for a sponsorship from the CubeSat standard for this discussion because yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say sure. that is the fantastic thing about CubeSats is they are so quick and easy to build. Um, <laughs> you're probably used to hearing like in the news, probably NASA missions are most of the headlines you will have come across in your life and those are going to be decade long missions. So that is the typical time scale for a satellite mission is 10 years or more. But in the last oh, wow. 20 years, since the rise of CubeSats, missions can be on two-year cycles, for example. So wow. um, we kicked off the mission for our satellites launching later this year, less than a year ago. Um, wow. So yeah, we'll be under two years for this first mission. And I should mention that we're partnering with a company called AAC Clyde Space. They're in Scotland, um, and they're doing the integration and managing the, the launch and operations of our first satellites. And so their team has really enabled us to um, keep up a rigorous schedule. Interesting. So, so when you say you kick off and you can do it within two years, what does that two years look like? Because obviously you have to assemble everything and kind of get it, but what does that really mean? And what do you do in those two years? And then obviously like you'd start back over to get the two years following like another one up or how does that kind of work? Mm-hmm. So from project kickoff, everybody should have an idea of what the objectives are, broad strokes objectives. If you don't have that, you're not ready to kick off the project yet. Um, after that, you just need to follow like a, 
space engineering project management guidebook basically um there's no document by that title that i'm thinking of i'm just thinking of general like training and in, in space mission project management where you have a preliminary design phase where your engineers are coming up with uh, again broad strokes concept designs and then you have a review like an in-depth review is this design going to work all the experts in the different areas cross-reference each other's work to make sure all the interfaces are going to work out and if that looks good if you pass that preliminary design review review you move through that gate into the next phase which is detailed design then you have another review then you move through that gate if you pass the review into um, integration so you manufacture the parts and actually put them together now you're not doing work on paper anymore you're putting things together with your hands in the lab um, after integration uh, you do another review and if you pass that then you do testing so you subject the satellite to all kinds of crazy conditions and check that all the subsystems work now that they're all put together um and then if that checks out then you deliver it to the launch vehicle so that would be kind of all carried over the span of two years in a really organized gated fashion like that to make sure that um there's a lot of appropriate reviews because it's a spacecraft. Once it once it goes up, there's no fixing it. So it has to work. So can you push software updates or any updates actually to it? Or how does that kind of work? Interesting question. You can. You can totally okay. update like the operating system of your satellite right. while it's in space. I personally, like I get scared every time that happens, because <laughs> even though you know that everybody's done their diligence, I'm always like, what if it doesn't boot? What if it doesn't boot? Yeah. <laughs> right. But you can. Yep, absolutely. Okay. And then what's the lifespan of this first satellite? Is it years or, or how does that kind of work? The lifetime of a satellite is just a function of the altitude that it's deployed into orbit, assuming that it doesn't have a propulsion system to boost its orbit over time um and so that with the altitude that ours are going up at they'll have um a lifespan of about three years before they naturally re-enter the atmosphere and burn up which here we go again is another great thing about cubesats is that um, they're normally deployed at relatively low altitudes above earth so they do burn up in the atmosphere rather than creating space junk that stays up there for decades and decades so here's another question then you know this is a business you've created so presumably then you're not doing just the one satellite what yeah we actually uh, have oh sorry go ahead no, no, so, so will there be more of the same satellite is it, is it will the next one be different like is this are you creating a, a menu a, a, a prototype which would then you'll do a lot of the same of or is this now um in an iterative thing and you kind of do one at a time there they're all going to be different. Good question. When I say, um, so for our first satellite mission, we all, we actually already have three in the works. The first one we're sending up as like a tester just to make sure like that works before we send up the next two, even though the next two are basically identical. Uh, we just want to de-risk a bit by staggering the launch of the first three. And then we do have already, we're already working on the next generations of Wyvern satellites, which will have um, better imaging capabilities, like better resolution, a broader spectral range, more spectral bands um, in the imagery. And so we have, um, yeah, like a more advanced satellite that we're already working on that's not going to be ready for another couple of years. So um, 
will have different satellites in orbit at the same time, serving different verticals. Um, and, and I like that roadmap because as I, as I said, launching them in a staggered way allows us to reduce a bit of the technology risk. Interesting. So how, okay, so you launched the first one, test one. How after the first one does the second and then after the second one, how, how long till the third one gets launched? Is it like weeks, is it a month? How long does that space it out between? Yeah, we're still figuring that out right now for uh, a few reasons. One is that, um, honestly, one thing that is really going to shake up the launch schedule for those last couple satellites is that um, there were a bunch of satellites planned to go up on Russian rockets that are not going up on Russian rockets anymore. Right. So there is going to be a scramble to, for all the remaining launch slots on the rockets at the end of this year and early next year. Um, so that's one factor. And then we also are just, um, we do work with our partner in Scotland, Clyde Space, to select launch bookings. And so we're working together right now to nail down the dates for the last two. Got it. Okay. But I guess then, ideally, would you want to do it weeks or, or months later? Or, or does it not really matter? I see. The ideal timing between the first satellite launching the next two depends on how long it takes you to get all the data you need to verify that that first satellite is working. Because um, you want to be able to verify the first one's working, so you have time to change anything on the second two before they're already out of your hands. Right. And that amount of time is one to two months. So okay. um, it'll be just a number of months between. Okay, interesting. That's fascinating. Very cool. I have a totally left field question. As as a person that plays Dungeons and Dragons, that is how I know the name Wyvern. Okay. How did the name of the company come to be? Our CEO, Chris, uh, loves dragons. Yeah. <laughs> he also loves Dungeons and Dragons. All right, okay. But a Wyvern is a dragon-like creature that has excellent eyesight. So it's also very appropriate for an Earth observation company. Cool, I love it. I kind of expected so, there might be a connection there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm curious then, in what other industries could you potentially target with this? Because obviously there's probably some military stuff if you want to go there. But what other types of imagery could you collect maybe in the future that we could really use on, on Earth? And then I guess a follow-up to that is, could you take pictures of other planets maybe down the road or is it they're too far away from from what you guys are trying to do um i'll answer the second part of the question first because i'm most okay. excited about that one we could totally image other planets and Ooh. at wyvern we're really excited one day we want like our dream would be to have wyvern satellites in orbit around mars for example so we have a really good understanding of the mineral deposits or like this all the all the um we can measure the chemistry of the surface of the entire planet of Mars with Wyvern satellites. If we had Wyvern satellites in orbit around Mars right now, we would be able to do that. Um, That's cool. Mm -hmm. That's I haven't cool. figured out how to make how to make uh, revenue of that case yet, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's in the works. I think you got to talk to all those companies. Yeah. Well, you got to talk to all those companies that are like, isn't there like supposed to be like a community or some billionaire guys trying to like send people there in like a few years or something? You got to talk to them. <laughs> Can you put me in touch? Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, follow up question is that. So back to back to Earth. Um, 
what sorts of things are interesting that you might have come across that you couldn't make money from for this? Like that, that there may be sort of common goods about just getting this view of our planet that is so different. Is there are there opportunities that you couldn't make money from, but the human race could benefit from? Mm-hmm. Um. There is a track record of Earth observation companies that already have satellites in orbit of uh, coming together in times of need to provide imagery where in areas where humanitarian aid is being sent, um, wow. just so that we, we have a better idea of um, exactly what's going on, especially if local infrastructure has been destroyed. Um, some satellite companies have released statements around the war in Ukraine and um, what they're doing to to do their part but um one on, on a much lighter note um some of my favorite satellite imagery is uh of when the when the ship got stuck in the suez canal <laughs> there's like like synthetic aperture radar which is this like high-tech black and white kind of like really high resolution satellite imagery of just they're just taking it because they can <laughs> the yeah. ship in the canal and like nobody we know perfectly well what's going on there but yeah. um ev i think every satellite took a picture of that because it was just really notable and um yeah. i loved looking at like them coming out one by one every satellite company <laughs> <laughs> that's cool so this might be a really stupid question because i don't really fully obviously understand the science behind it but like can you actually like when you're playing, doing like a simulation, obviously you can do it in the computer, but can you do like a, because the satellite's so small, can you like build a thing to house the actual satellite? So it could be like just in front of you and you guys can kind of like watch it move and open up and, and that kind of thing. Like, is there like a chamber you can create or something? While the satellite's in space or? No, like while it's on earth and you're like testing it, can you like build a model that kind of just like floats there in zero gravity that you can kind of tinker with and play with? Yeah, it's common to have an engineering model that's like a copy of your actual flight model. And the engineering okay. model is the one that you can like poke and prod and kind of test and push to the limits. You don't want to push the flight model to the limits. because You don't want right. to break it before you launch it. So right. you can have like a basically an exact copy. That's the engineering model. And then talking about like uh, building a chamber around it or zero gravity kind of stuff. There's a ton of really cool testing and integration equipment um, involved in satellite testing. And so one of the things we're going to have to do at one point is, again, thank goodness it's small, put it in a chamber, suck all the air out of the chamber so it's a vacuum close to the vacuum of space, and then heat and cool the satellite cyclically so that oh, it simulates like um, mechanically on Earth being on the light side of Earth, like where the sun is shining, where it's very hot because there's no atmosphere between the sun and the satellite. And then onto the, um, in the Earth's shadow where it's very cold because on the satellite around all sides, it's um, facing deep space, which is three degrees Kelvin, like very cold. So um, we cycle it through hot and cold cycles on the ground to make sure that the expansion and contraction and electronics and everything will survive that. So there's all kinds of contraptions that we subject it to before it launches. Yes. That's really, cool. I, I just got, I have to ask because our listeners will be like me. And so I, I, I'm familiar with Calvin, but you know, where is that on the coldest day on earth? How much colder is that in, 
been, let's say, the, the coldest you've ever experienced? It's a 200 or so, maybe, degrees colder. Celsius, let's maybe. see. Three Kelvin is minus 270 Celsius. <laughs> I've, wow. I've never experienced that. I don't think I'd be here today if I had ever no, experienced no, no. <laughs> And what on the hot side? How hot does it get then? What's the, what's the hot side? I only know temperature readings from inside a satellite when it's mm. uh, on the hot side. Um, one of the saving graces is that if the, it only takes like, let's say two hours for it to orbit Earth, it's not baking in the sun for hours and hours on end. It'll be like in the sun for an hour and then it's in cold for an hour. So although it's facing extreme temperatures, it doesn't have much time to heat up or cool down. Uh, yeah. So the temperatures I've seen from inside a satellite in a similar orbit are like 30 degrees, kind of comfortable temperatures, okay. but it is getting up to 30 degrees pretty fast from yeah. being at like zero in, in the eclipse. Yeah, that's amazing. So what types of material are you putting kind of on the outside to handle that extreme hot and cold? Did you have to create something or is there something that are, are part of that, the pieces that fit together? Is that something that is already on the parts or did you have to come up with something for that? Um, there's nothing. There usually isn't a ton of uh, components on the outside of the satellite that are too sensitive to temperature. Um, you have solar okay. panels, which you want to be facing the sun directly. Most of the outside of the satellite is covered in that. And those don't have a okay. problem. Um, one of the like the biggest considerations are you need your electronics, all your chips to be able to withstand more extreme temperatures. So unfortunately, that means a little, they're a little more expensive normally than like what's in your phone, because okay. uh, you need the chips to be able to withstand more temperatures than your phone is ever subjected to. But um, also for the camera, we need to be able to cool the sensor if it gets too hot. Having a camera sensor be uh. too hot is a common problem in Earth observation satellites. So there's a cooling system normally to, um, to yeah, prevent that. What is a cooling system? I'm assuming it's not like water or something. No, you don't want to have liquid on your satellites that causes right. all sorts of safety issues for launch and deployment. Um, People generally avoid that if they can. So it's all electric. Okay. And then this is going to sound really nerdy. I'm assuming you're running Linux on the satellite then, or what's the software on the satellite running? Like, is there what operating system or did you have to build your own? Yeah. Um, the software is being built uh, through a contractor with, um, or sorry, not through a contractor, but with our partners at AAC Clydespace. Okay. Um, so they are writing the software. So I don't know what what is the base of the software on this satellite, but I do know there are CubeSat operating systems that are Linux based. Those exist and have flown in space before. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. So, so, I, oh, so if I'm a if I'm a farmer and I want to subscribe, to get this information. How would how do I how, how will I go about getting that? That's a great question, and. Um, it took us a while at Wyvern to understand the answer to that question. Like I said, we've been around for four years. It took us the first year or two to get a good answer to that. If you're a farmer you and you're a farmer who is keen on precision agriculture technology, which is um, what Wyvern caters to, you already probably are using satellite imagery or drone imagery or other data from sensors in your field 
and you have an app on your phone um, that collects the data and shows it to you. So you, you might already have a map of your crop on your phone using other people's data right now. The problem is that that data doesn't have sufficient imagery to tell you in much detail what's going on. It just tells you generally how healthy is everything doing. So um, we don't sell directly to the farmer because those doing precision agriculture are, all, are already embedded in a system of um, like monitoring their field that they're used to and um, is working for them now. Wyvern would sell to the companies that are making the products that the farmer is already using. And so we're selling to the analytics firms who are delivering the insights to the farmers because the farmer themselves wouldn't know what to do with the hyperspectral image if we just give it to them. They don't know the processing to, to extract the insights. And so A, we want to embed ourselves in the, in the system of technology they're already using, so we don't need to switch just for us. And B, we sell to one level above the farmers um, so that they know how to process the data. Is, is the information also interesting to insurance companies? guys explored that as well? Um, potentially. Um, Wyvern is not tackling the insurance market, but um, our CEOs, the company our CEO previously founded, um, did look into how Earth observation data can be used in the insurance market. Um, I'm not sure what it is about the business case there that um, doesn't quite work out, but I haven't seen anybody like nail that yet. So um, yeah, Wyvern doesn't have any plans to go into that anytime soon, no. And, and I'm not quite sure what it is about that that doesn't work, but um, if somebody could figure it out, then I, like I'm sure there's that that's definitely an opportunity. So are you, when you, when you, okay, so the satellite's going around the earth 16 times a day, I think you said, is that correct? Yeah. So are you covering the entire globe then? And when you sell to one of your customers, are they basically just giving you like, we need the Latin longs of like, I don't know, the state of Texas or something. And then you can give them the state of Texas or, or how does that kind of work? Mm-hmm. The satellite will, so our each satellite will be able to image the whole globe, except it can't go above or below a certain latitude. Um, okay. Off the top of my head, I don't remember what latitude that is, but it's pretty far north and south. So most of the land mass we can get. Um, and a customer will place an order by giving us exactly that, a bounding box okay. of coordinates. And then Wyvern takes that bounding box and our... Um, Wyvern software determines whether our satellites can image it like, or when's the next time our satellite's gonna be able to image it. And then we um, tell the customer, yep, this is when we can image it and then they can complete their order. Okay, interesting. So I'm assuming at some point, will you build kind of like a Google Earth type view where I could just like scroll around the globe and like zoom into different parts to see all the images you've taken or, or is that kind of not really what you guys are going to do down the road or, or today? Yeah, to build something like Google Earth, you do, you need to 
you need to actually image the whole earth, not just have the capability to image the whole earth. And okay. those are two very different things. Um, so we will not actually be taking images of everywhere and downloading them because okay. sending images from the satellite to earth is actually pretty costly. That's like one of the most costly parts of operating. Um, it's because you need you need to beam the data down uh, via radio to an antenna on the ground, like an antenna on Earth that can receive data from space. Okay. And there's only so many of those, and they're only in certain locations. And um, lots of satellite companies want to use them. <laughs> so okay. you have to pay for time on those. So we're uh -huh. only going to send back the data that we need, which is the data our customers order. So we're not just going to be taking images everywhere for the sake of okay. it. Okay, but like would down the road, like, is it even legal to build your own antenna? Like, or you always have to go through a third party company to, to do this? Yeah, we could build out our own network of antennas. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, but <laughs> that at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about being capital intensive. So right, I see. Yeah, we'd need and, and we need them to be everywhere because um, the satellite will only be over like able to communicate with Edmonton for maybe like 10 minutes before it's gone ah, over the horizon. So okay. we need to put an antenna up in New Zealand and then like all I in Europe, that. all over the world. So it would be a big operation. Okay. So this is probably a stupid question, but is the satellite going east to west, west to east, north to south, or is it like kind of going all over? Like how does, what, what direction is it going, I guess, or is it always changing? Yes, um, the satellite is inclined, um, not quite a polar orbit like north-south, but it's uh, it's inclined roughly 10 degrees off of a north-south plane. Um, okay. And the Earth is turning under it, which right. means that as it's going around that inclined orbit, um, yeah, what it's seeing underneath is, is going to be constantly changing. And okay, so, so you're using the Earth's rotation, but you're yeah. continually circling the Earth in the same circle. Yeah. Okay, interesting. That's yeah. fascinating. Very is that a pretty standard way to do it? Is that typical of satellites or is that, um, is there all kind of different ideas around that? Um, there are three main ideas. There's that, what I just described. Um, yeah. If you want to do a deep dive on that, look up sun synchronous orbit. That's the orbit that we're in. And um, it means that we um, will pass. Yeah, look up sun synchronous orbit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But the other two main ways that um, people will set up their imaging satellites are if you want to mainly image uh, the northern, like the Arctic or something, if you're Canada or Russia, you can do a really cool, weird orbit that the Russians invented. Um, I'm going to mispronounce it. Um, Molnia orbit. Um, and it no one will challenge you. <laughs> highly elliptical. And it kind of lingers over the North Pole for a really long time and then slingshots around the south of the Earth. So cool. other Earth imaging satellites wow. will be in that type of orbit if you want to focus on the Arctic, because it's really hard to get like a lot of time above the Arctic in any of their orbit. And then the last option is geostationary, which is way further out, like 30,000 kilometers 
in altitude as opposed to 600, which is what we're talking about for sun synchronous. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and there are imaging satellites at uh, geostationary, mainly for weather. Fascinating. But, but sadly, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about Wyvern and any other links you want to mention? Sure. Um, I would recommend Wyvern's website as a starting point. It has links to our socials and everything on it. Our website is www.wyvern.space, like spell out the word space. Um, and, but on Twitter, we are at Wyvern Space. And uh, on LinkedIn, you're also at Wyvern Space. Perfect, Kelly. Well, I really appreciate you taking time in your day to talk with us and have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Bye. Bye. Well, John and Greg, what did you guys think of that? Well, that was great. Uh, it was a very deep dive into a subject uh, we have no knowledge of so yeah. <laughs> I thought it was incredibly interesting i also think yeah. it's uh what's really interesting to me is the complexity of what they're trying to do first of all they're trying to build hardware launch it into space and then sell a product the data and 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 the product itself so i i think it's fascinating yeah that's that's it's a high wire act of like Six different kinds. I mean, you know, we talked about you know physics, chemistry, and biology, but then it's a business too. Holy, like yeah. this, like you said, that is incredibly hard. So uh, kudos to them. That's so cool. It's so, so cool what she's doing. Um, and I thought there was really, I I loved the parts. Um, well, actually, I, I was surprised by the answer too of of how dense how she's able to use that and work. I I love yeah. that kind of stuff. So, you know, like learning here and bring it to there and and how um you know two people having beers uh end up being this origin story for for something that's ends up being really cool like you know two two people with two different uh disciplines come together and they realize hey we could do something together that now these two separate ideas make something kind of magical so i love that stuff totally i, I think for me just the size of being like basically the size of like two loaves of bread, like how small they're yeah. able to make these things now to like send something back and forth between, you know, outer space and I, Earth. I like cool. that. Yeah, your frame of reference was a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. She's like, like, no, no, you can put it in the glove box. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wild, wild, very cool, very cool, pretty cool. Thank you for tuning in to the Learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app, or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with two L's at www.lleerner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening, and keep on learning.